This is The Engine Room of Democracy, a podcast series that explores how the rules and values of constitutional democracy work every day in our government and in our lives. Here we will explore major questions facing America. How do we keep government institutions accountable to citizens? How do democracies control military force? What is lawful warfare? How do we enforce it? How do the courts enforce their judgments? How do we honor the right of privacy while our security forces use electronic tools to track down bad guys? I'm your host, John Hamry, here at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Each week, I sit down with remarkable individuals who had senior government positions to discuss these questions. We explore together what it means to be a government of laws. Hello, everybody. My name is John Hamry, and I welcome you to this edition of our podcast series, The Engine Room of Democracy. Today, we're very privileged to have with us General Vincent Brooks. General Brooks is a storied pathbreaker in the U.S. Army. He was the first African-American to be cadet first captain, the head of the cadet brigade at West Point. General Brooks held numerous positions as a warrior, as a policymaker. He was the architect of Pacific Pathways, which was the blueprint for bringing the Army meaningfully into engaging in the Pacific. In his last position, he was the senior commander for U.S. forces in Korea, but that's a very unique position, and we're going to explore that today because uh, in this role, General Brooks was the lead military figure for a partnership for coalition operations, for UN operations, actually. And so we're going to have a real interesting experience today to listen to General Brooks on this dimension of rule of law. And so I'm, I'm very grateful that you'll join us today, General Brooks. In your last military assignment, you were the head of U.S. forces in Korea. You also were a UN commander, you know, and you were the leader of a joint Korean-U.S. military organization. Could you give us a snapshot of your responsibilities in Korea? Well, first, John, thanks for including me on this uh, great program, and I'm honored to be a part of it. You know, there were at least three hats, three primary hats that I, that I wore, and I would usually simplify the description as saying it's as easy as one, two, and three plus. One is the unilateral U.S.-only command called U.S. Forces Korea. And that's responsible for all U.S. forces in Korea. It's pretty straightforward as it's described. Two is for the binational alliance command called the Republic of Korea, United States Combined Forces Command. And as its title describes, it is actually a combination of U.S. and South Korean forces under one single command. And it's a binational command. So two. And then three plus is the United Nations Command. That is a coalition command. That means there's a grouping of countries who come together for like mind and like purpose, but don't have a standing document, a treaty that binds them to one another. And that can be as many as 22, as we saw during the Korean War, or some new number if there were to be a future conflict. And so that's how I describe it. One, two, three plus, the three different types of commands. <laughs> it helps somebody like me. So because you do, we're wearing all these hats, 
what is the structure of accountability in such a complicated assignment as you had, where you had these three different dimensions? What was accountability like for you as a military officer? Well, you know, John, this can sound very complicated, so I'll, I'll try to make it as simple as possible. It's, it's relatively straightforward when one knows which command about which one is speaking and understands the uh, lines of authority and the appropriate limitations of the power associated with that position. So let me go back through it in terms of one, two, and three plus once again. Mm -hmm. For the U.S. Forces Korea Command, the line of accountability is driven by the United States Unified Command Plan. That's the plan that is put out that essentially assigns geographic or functional responsibility to a number of four-star level commanders, it could be of all services, to cover the globe. It's what makes us global. And really, there is no other country that has such a design. Only the United States has this throughout the entirety of the world. And so for the Indo-Pacific region, that is a combatant command, a unified combatant command. And it is geographically oriented from the West Coast of the United States to the West Coast of India, from the Antarctic to the Arctic. We used to call that from Hollywood to Bollywood. <laughs> that was the easiest way to describe it. But it's more than about 52% of the world. Inside of that command is a subordinate unified command. In other words, it has all the trappings of the bigger command of Indo-Pacific Command, but geographically constrained to the land space of South and North Korea, the territorial waters adjacent to the two, and the airspace above it. And so that is a specific subordinate command, and that is U.S. Forces Korea. So the line of accountability goes through Indo-Pacific Command to the Secretary of Defense with the uh, support and coordination of the Joint Chiefs to the President of the United States. That's that accountability line. It's unilateral, straight to the United States. The binational command, as you can imagine from the, that description, has two lines of accountability. I always kind of show a fork because it, the junction is the Combined Forces Command, but it leads through the two chairmen of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. The two militaries have similar structures. So the South Korean chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the U.S. chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, who form a military committee that administers the military aspects of the alliance. Then there's a next level up, and that is the Minister of Defense of South Korea and the Secretary of Defense of the United States. They form essentially the policy layer of the oversight of the military aspects of the alliance. And they form a security consultation mechanism to do that, to discuss where things are going to go. And then finally, each of them reports to their respective presidents. So president of the Republic of Korea, president of the United States. So those are the two lines, the forking lines that ascend to the two presidents. That's a line of accountability. And in that, of course, as the combined force commander that is held by an American now with an assigned South Korean four-star general as the deputy commander, the two of us were responsible for making sure that we were always thinking from an alliance perspective, not a U.S. perspective, not a South Korean perspective, an alliance perspective, and thus the vertex of those two lines. The third or three plus is about United Nations command. That is a multinational command that was created to establish unity of command 
in the conduct of operations, particularly during the Korean War. It's not a warfighting headquarters now. That changed in 1978 when the combined force for South Korea and the United States was created. That's the warfighter. United Nations Command enforces the armistice and also provides enabling for dialogue. And most importantly, is the home for any international commitments to the Korean Peninsula. A very important role. And thus it can expand or contract depending on the country's who believe that they ought to be part of what's happening on the Korean Peninsula. And that's for good or for bad. In other words, it can be for uh, the establishment of peace, long awaited. It can also be for the resumption of war, long avoided. The line of accountability for UN command is a much more difficult one to describe. It, by design, and since 1950, is essentially subordinate to and controlled by the U.S. Joint Chiefs of Staff, operating as a collective committee, a body. It has the UN flag uh, as granted by the UN Security Council, but the United Nations doesn't routinely direct or control any of the operations of United Nations Command. And that too has been the case since 1950. So the flag is granted, reports are provided. So there's a degree of accountability back to the United Nations in the form of reports that are submitted in writing by the commander of United Nations Command. And that's been the case since 1950. I've submitted several of those during my time in command. The control aspect of it really is by the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And that has, in some measures, fallen into a degree of atrophy. And so one of the things that we were doing during our time was to try to restructure that. There needs to be a more modernized approach to overseeing and directing UN command, particularly if we thought we were about to either have a breakthrough for peace or a resumption of war. So those are the lines for each one. And knowing the difference was critically important. For example, I couldn't say no to the South Korean president as the combined forces commander. He's my commander in chief. But I could say no to the South Korean president on matters that related to the armistice and its preservation as the UN commander, which sometimes created a rub, especially on the issue of national sovereignty. So these are some of the matters that faced us in those three different commands. You know, for our listeners, especially younger listeners, you know, the Korean War did not end with a peace agreement. It ended with an armistice. And so that is what General Brooks is referring to, is that there's a continuing unresolved political dimension to it, which still requires his role as the UN force commander in the theater. So just for reference, General, if I could ask on number two, what is it like working with allies? What does the real dimension of working with allies mean for an American military commander? Well, I'll start by saying that there are different structures by which countries come together to work. The highest order is an alliance. And that means that there is an established document, usually a mutual defense treaty, that says that if something happens to you, I'm going to be there. I promise that in advance. And depending on what the nature of that alliance is, like the U.S. and Korea alliance, it includes continuous presence by the United States in South Korea. Similarly, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization is an alliance of the United States. The U.S. has seven different alliances, and they're usually bilateral, with the exception of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, which is multilateral. So the alliance is the highest. The next level down is a coalition. And that is a grouping of countries who are, as I said earlier, of like mind or feel a common purpose and choose to work together. 
And that happens all over the world. So what happened in Iraqi freedom in 2003, for example, was a coalition. Unity of command can be established. That means a single headquarters that is issuing instructions to all those forces which might be involved, no matter what country. But in an alliance, there's the decision-making mechanism that I described earlier, where the two countries really need to agree on any actions being taken and that their national priorities and prerogatives are measured in nearly every action. So it requires considerable coordination. When you have a standing command like this unique Republic of Korea, U.S. Combined Forces Command, that's the only one in the world that's like that, that enables the continuous conversation and coordination that's necessary. And because it has lasted so long, it also leads to creating commonality of doctrine, you know, those rules and practices that govern the way work is done militarily. It extends into culture. So while the Korean culture and the American culture are not the same socially, militarily, they are very much the same. As I describe it, we, we share DNA. There's no doubt about it. They are structured the same way. And so an alliance can lead to that degree of the next term, interoperability. And that's the ease with which operations can be conducted by the two or more allies. Now, that's very difficult to achieve in a, a coalition because you don't know who's going to be on the team until they show up. Imagine uh, if you're remembering the types of terms you would use as a kid growing up on a playground, you know, pick up game is what a coalition is, but a standing team is what an alliance is. And so the degree to which you can work together, that means that your ammunition is the same size. I need ammo. I can hand ammo to my partner. It means that the communication systems, notwithstanding linguistic challenges, but the technical aspects, the policy aspects of communicating with one another can be facilitated uh, because of the alliance structures. And it also takes into account those national restrictions, national prerogatives on a continuous basis. Whereas in a coalition, those tend to become friction points that emerge when a particular threshold for a given country is reached. For example, I, I participated in coalitions around the world as well as alliances. And often we would find that there was a restriction that a country would bring to bear. Saying, we are not going to operate north of the internationally recognized border, for example. We will not conduct operations that involve regime change. We will not conduct operations, et cetera, et cetera. So there, there are national caveats that each country imposes on the unified commander to ensure that that commander does not misuse or abuse the commitment made by that country. These kinds of things are worked out in, in detail in an alliance. They're standing procedures to work through those things. They're, they're a running game in a coalition. So working with allies can be very, very challenging and at the same time, very rewarding. I have found some of my most enjoyable and rewarding experiences have been working with other country militaries. And I counted it up as I retired. I think there were 88 different countries that I worked with over time. And one learns quite a bit about one's own country and one's own approach by seeing someone else. We don't have everything mastered. Some things are done better in other countries. Some countries have advantages in areas that we don't have. And we can learn from one another, and it makes the entire collective body much, much better.
And you indicated that the relationship to the UN is a little creaky, somewhat fallen into a bit of disrepair from a political channel. But what was it like uh, as a military officer? How did you work with the UN? Because I think this is also the only place where the United States has a standing relationship with the United Nations. That's right. This is the only standing UN command. There are periodic ones that might emerge in West Africa or Sudan or, or Lebanon. So there are UN missions that are out there, but they are fundamentally temporary, even if they've lasted for many years. This one was a standing command that was created. It was for the purpose of the defense of South Korea. Well, this is a born of 1950 decisions and created by the United Nations Security Council. But a very early decision after establishment was to pass control to the United States. And the United States would therefore administer it, give it its specific uh, operational instructions and directions, apply limitations, for example, important decisions to not expand the Korean War into China, across the North Korea-China border. China came in the opposite direction, obviously, uh, and so the battles with China occurred in North and South Korea. They did not occur in China. Well, that was an imposition that the uh, U.S. body wanted to impose. The challenge, of course, is that any military command, well-governed, must have political authority above it. This is very important. The uh, other structures in Category 1 and Category 2 have very clear political structures above them. Policy can then emerge from that political structure with the appropriate limits on war or any conduct of military activity. When that is not present, it's left then to the military commander to be mindful enough of political consequences, geopolitics, uh, the dynamics that can create skews in the geopolitical sphere, and the commander himself or herself must take that into account and self-manage. Well, that was generally okay throughout most of this armistice that has lasted since 1953. So this is many years now of a continuously running armistice, but there's one period from 1966 to 1969 that some describe as the second Korean War, where the mechanisms for preserving the armistice were being challenged, particularly by North Korea, and live Active firefights in combat were occurring even in this period of armistice, which is supposed to be a suspension of hostilities until a lasting peace agreement can be made. Well, that sure looks like war, but it isn't. And the effort was always to resume the armistice until such time as a lasting peace agreement can be created. Well, the military commander at the time had to deal with that and make decisions about escalation, de escalation responding. And this has been uh, one of the challenges for the UN commander ever since. How do you manage that? Now, that fever point of the late 1960s, which was concurrent with the Vietnam War and perhaps opportunistic on the side of North Korea, did calm back down, but flared up again in 1976 when an incident involving the trimming of a tree turned into a major operation. It has since come forward where we have not had to conduct operations and thus not needed much in the way of political direction until my time in command, where in 2016, we faced a different problem. That was Chinese fishing boats coming into areas that were controlled under the armistice agreement. In other words, they didn't belong to North Korea or South Korea, 
but they're in territorial waters of each, a fishing area that had not been fished for 50 or 60 years. It was like a wildlife preserve. The Chinese fishermen found this, came down along the coast of North Korea, entered into this area, and at one point in time had 300 boats in there hauling away fish that neither North Korean fishermen nor South Korean fishermen were allowed to enter because of the armistice. And it was creating a significant political issue in South Korea uh, that the president of South Korea had to respond to. And ultimately our solution was to not allow South Korea to unilaterally go in and clear out the Chinese fishing boats because this would have been done within about 200 yards of North Korea, well within the range of all of their weapon systems and in full knowledge of North Korean military positions. The potential for miscalculation was too high. So it became a United Nations command operation, the first one since 1976, to create a maritime police force that flew the blue flag over the South Korean flag and used authorities established by the UN commander on limitations for the use of force, what types of weapons would be involved, things that are derived from law of war, those things were applied by the UN commander, and we created an arrangement with South Korea on how to conduct that. And they accepted that arrangement, and we were successful in driving away the Chinese fishing boats without a single shot being fired. And I think it's very important. Where was the political body for that? Well, it became a direct discussion between the UN commander and the South Korean government through the South Korean Joint Chiefs of Staff and the Ministry of Defense who were reporting into the South Korean National Security Council. This clearly indicated that there's not enough structure to work through potential significant shifts to the paradigm of armistice. And I, I'm alluding to the potential for resumption of hostilities. And we thought that might happen because of the testing being done by North Korea in 2016 and 17, or a breakthrough that would lead to disarmament, peace, Finally, the peace agreement that had been long awaited since the signing of the armistice in 1953. In either direction, there would have to be a structure above UN command so that the UN commander was not making these decisions unilaterally. And we made some progress on that, but it's, it's still not where it ought to be. General Brooks, you raised this issue of law of armed conflict. In previous sessions on this podcast series, we've talked a great deal about the Uniform Code of Military Justice, UCMJ, uh, and obviously that guided operations as far as the U.S. military is concerned. What was the legal framework for the bilateral military organization? Did the Koreans just accept our framework? Was there some new thing that was developed? How did that work? Well, some of it is addressed through what is called standing operating procedures. So how things are done, what decisions are made on proportionality for responses, et cetera. These things have been worked out through standing operating procedures, an agreement between the two countries. And of course, these are subject to review and scrutiny by the, the two national bodies in the framework that I discussed about the hierarchies of decision-making for the binational command. But largely, it comes to the commander and deputy commander to discuss something if it's a matter of concern and working out what instruction is to then be given to the combined force. But when it really comes down to it, it's essentially two parallel systems 
and that is the South Korean system for applying the rule of law in the conditions of armed conflict, and the U.S. system, as you described. So when it comes to discipline to be administered into the formation, that discipline is really done through administrative channels, and the administrative channels always remain national, so they don't join. That means that South Korea disciplines South Korean soldiers, airmen, Marines, sailors. Americans do the same for their own. So it's principally two parallel systems when it comes to military justice, as you described. But when it comes to the conduct of war, it's slightly different. And that is common decisions that have to be made between the two countries. And if there's an infraction, the investigating of it is done by the combined headquarters and then reported to the unilateral side. So, for example, if we had been in the conduct of combat operations, which is, by the way, the only time that that combined force comes together to conduct operations effectively. Day to day, there's training events, there's coordination, but the, the, the subunits, the fighters, don't belong to the combined command until you're in war. But if we were in those conditions and something were to occur, the combined headquarters would do the initial investigation and would report, for example, if it's a South Korean infraction, they would report it to the chairman of the South Korean Joint Chiefs of Staff, who would address it in South Korean channels. Similarly, to the U.S. Forces Commander, who would address it in U.S. channels if it is a U.S. infraction. So this analysis from who it is that was responsible for the conduct of operations, that's the combined command, but going out for administrative sufficiency to establish or reestablish rule of law goes into those two parallel national tracts. And I think to comment more broadly about coalitions like United Nations Command, the same sort of uh, basis applies. Who is it that was conducting the operation? That's who would have responsibility for analyzing what happened and what the conditions were, and then reporting to that national chain with expectation to reestablish rule of law or to impose appropriate discipline or military justice. Let me just shift to ask, this is unusual command, as we've discussed before. You're both a warrior and a diplomat. You know, there are two dimensions to your leadership. Would you discuss with us how you balanced, you know, that role, that that dynamic between being a commander and being a diplomat? I would say first, I agree with some of the military theorists who've written through time that the more senior that military commander becomes, the closer to becoming a statesman that military commander becomes, while always remaining a general. And so it's it's a recognized uh, aspect of senior command strategic level command. And of course, practice growing up through the ranks would lead one to have a foundation of experience and understanding or an absence of it. It depends on what your track was. I felt very fortunate that I'd been exposed to that a number of times and felt pretty well prepared. Now, there's always an embassy in any country where the U.S. military is operating. And the fundamental statesmanship belongs to the embassy to the U.S. ambassador, and on into the secretary of state, into the president. But the continuous role of diplomacy means really everyone, and certainly the the senior military commander must be thoughtful about that. In the construct of one, two, and three plus, each one of those commands had a diplomatic role. And so one, for the U.S. forces Korea, 
conveying the interests of the United States to the South Korean government from a military perspective was my responsibility. And there's actually a title for that. It's called the Senior U.S. Military Official Assigned to Korea. And in typical government behavior, with such a tremendous title, it's too long to say. So we just call it S-U-S-M-O-A-K, SUSMOAK. <laughs> that doesn't help, by the way, but that's at least another term. SUSMOAK really is conveying on behalf of the U.S. Secretary of Defense to the South Korean government the issues and perspectives of the U.S. government. That's very much engaging in what I call military diplomacy. There's no question that I'm a general doing that, but I'm conveying on behalf of the U.S. government because I live there in South Korea and I have continuous contact, whereas the two capitals are distant from one another and are on opposite sides of the, the timeline, uh, given what time of day it is, with the exception of one hour. It's a one hour difference between literally being on the opposite side of the world. And so that complicates coordination tends to be best when both sides are awake. And that's a limited number of hours in any given day, twice a day. For category two, there is a need to sense alliance. As I mentioned, the commander and the deputy commander in particular are assigned to those positions only to focus on the alliance. And while there can be a conversation between the two of them on the Korean perspective or what the Korean National Security Council is considering, what the U.S. National Security Council is considering, the recommendations they make must be alliance recommendations. And that's very important. So the military recommendation must take into account the considerations, the equities of both alliance partners. And that requires a degree of engagement with each structure in order to have that, that conversation between the commander and the deputy commander, and then making the, the appropriate military recommendation or advice very keenly focused on national matters while also being focused on the alliance matters. And then in three plus, the need to maintain dialogue with any one of the sending states, that's the term of art, that's a United Nations member who sent some capability. Well, there were 22 of them from the Korean War, and we maintain continuous communication with them because they're still on our team. We're still an armistice. The, the same action for which they fought is in effect. And so monthly, for example, the commander of United Nations Command during my time and into the present would convene a meeting of all of the ambassadors of those 22 United Nations sending states and supporting states. And we would have a roundtable discussion. It was more of an update than anything else, but to share the military perspective from the eyes of the UN commander out to those countries was a very important military diplomacy action that kept all of those nations informed. And indeed, in many cases, the sending state ambassadors invited UN command to come and speak to other collective bodies of which they were constituent. For example, the UK ambassador invited me to speak to the EU ambassadors as a group in 2017 to inform the entirety of the European Union. And in some cases, we were in political tension with some of those members at the national level. But as the UN commander, I was in no tension with them and therefore could communicate openly with them about what was being contemplated and what we were undertaking. And ultimately, that, that led into what became the Vancouver Dialogue 
in uh, early 2018. That was a proposal made by UN Command to expand that roundtable to a larger ministerial discussion that might be centered around those 22 countries or could be an adjustment to that to signal the importance of the international community focused on North Korea. So in every one of these positions, one, two, and three plus, there was a continuous understanding and activity set related to the role of being a statesman at the same time. During your tenure, of course, you saw a fairly dramatic change in the government in Korea with different political directions. Can you describe what that was like in terms of how do you help them understand your role, but then also how do you accommodate the new political directions of a new government in Seoul? Well, this is a bit like surfing or staying on top of a skateboard, uh, going through a, an obstacle course. The conditions that came through 2016 into 17, first we had considerable activity by North Korea, but we had a uh, essentially a political meltdown in South Korea that led to ultimately to the impeachment of the sitting president and removal from office. And that happened very, very quickly from October 16 to February or March of 17, just a few months. That also happened to be uh, at the same time as the general elections for the United States to elect a new president and the party shift that occurred and the individual changed. So from President Obama to President Trump, that too occurred, of course, with the inauguration in January of 2017. So these were overlapped. Interestingly, the way the alliance commander had to view both countries and the way the UN commander had to view both countries changed. And so prior to the change out of the two presidencies in 2017, South Korea was in a very aggressive posture, having had loss of life in 2010 through uh, strikes that were done by North Korea, lethal strikes, and two different occasions in particular. And having gone through some incidents that occurred in 2015, South Korea was on a bit of a hair trigger and had expected a different approach to proportionality in response to North Korea that was straining the armistice in some cases, but was fulfilling their sense of national sovereignty and their right of self-defense. Well, so they were on a hair trigger and the U.S. government was more on the let's not let South Korea draw us into something precipitously. And so they were much more the speed break this is not a matter of a separation in the alliance, but rather just how the two partners in a yin-yang construct were engaging with one another. By April of 2017, after the inauguration of President Moon Jae-in, uh, replacing the impeached President Park Geun-hye of South Korea, and of course now two and a half months in with the change from President Obama to President Trump, the U.S. was much more on the aggressive posture and South Korea was now much more on the speed break. And so the commanders, given the three hats, had to be responsive to each one of those in a very different way during that time. That was quite a lesson in being agile and at the same time stable. The military command had to be a part of the stability of the alliance relationship so that as these valences changed between the two countries, the alliance was still able to hold together in the face of what North Korea was doing at the time. Fascinating experience. I can only imagine it would have 
tested every bit of your skills, both as a warrior and a diplomat, to pull that together. General Brooks, this has been a fascinating discussion. If I could recount, kind of summarize in my own mind the points you've made, I mean, you've indicated that there are enormous amounts of constraints and oversight structures that come with operating with allies and in an international context, and that each of them has to be managed, and you do need a political framework to provide direction, guidance, and legitimacy for the military operations, that there is a deeply thought, well-engineered structure of accountability uh, and discipline, and that it, it has worked, and it really has caused us to draw close together with Korea as a true alliance partner, and that showed a lot of strain at the time when, as you said, there was a valence change in the politics, but you kept it together. So can I just ask you, are there any concluding comments you'd like to make before we wrap up? Well, thanks, John, for this session once again. It's gone by all too quickly. The one thing I would say is that it has been often stated, and it remains true, that the only thing worse than going to war with allies is going to war without them. And so it's, in my view, a necessary evil. And certainly it comes also with the role of leadership that the United States carries globally. The U.S. presence with a partner, which is we're just working together for now. Nothing's going to be standing after that. A coalition, which is we have committed ourselves until the purpose is accomplished. Or an alliance, which is I'm with you now and forever until we decide that this relationship ends. And each one of them operating with someone else enriches the decisions, enriches the outcomes, and enriches the conditions that emerge thereafter. And so I can't imagine any one of the engagements that the United States has been in from really 1917 on, these places where we fundamentally operated with someone else, some other country, how much more challenging those would have been if the U.S. was trying to go it alone. So I, I happen to be an unabashed globalist. I believe that there is a role for the United States in this. And often it creates professional militaries where they would otherwise be gangs of brigands and hooligans. It changes their behavior. And it's an intangible that I call exporting professionalism. And that should not be ignored when we're thinking about alliances or partnerships or coalitions around the world. But thanks so much for letting me join you for this, John. Well, as you say, professionalism, exporting lawful warfare, exporting rule of law and, and democracy. General Brooks, thank you. You are a, a storied soldier, a very successful military leader, a diplomat, and a great patriot. Thank you for taking the time to do this today. Thank you, John. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog.